Hello. Hey, you're connected as a, as a chipmunk. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 271 is recorded live January 28th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are having, I don't know, not a whole lot of diving going on. Has there been? Not since last weekend. <laughs> well, I guess that, that counts. That's better than what I've been able to get to do. Joining uh, me this week. I, we, I was going to say, I think I've hit every weekend this month. Yeah. Rub it in. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm keeping lubricated, so I'm good. Yeah, your your, your dry suit is, hasn't completely dried out. Uh, well, I'm lubricated internally and externally. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I think we're starting to dial in the the sound with the new setup. I still want to make some more changes. We'll, we'll refine things as we we move through the season. Oh, hold on one second. Uh, it should make it a little bit quieter. Get rid of some rid of some of that background noise. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have up is gold mining. They said that gold mining methods in the state of Washington have caused an environmental debate. Uh, the gold miners environmentalists are facing off in the state of Washington over methods being employed to extract gold from prime fishing streams. The PBS station KCTS 9 out of Seattle and EarthFix report on the controversy using potential for damage that suction dredging may pose. Washington is one of the few states that still permit suction dredge mining. In suction dredging, according to the news reports, miners in scuba year use high-powered vacuums to suck off sediment from the bottom of the stream and subsequently power it through a riffle box. The riffle box separates the components of the sediment, and any gold present in the sediment will drop in the bottom of the container. The rest of the sediment uh, is expelled turbulently back into the water. Environmental ang- environmentalists and anglers are trying to end the practice, arguing that it damages streams and their related ecosystems. This is according to PBS and the Earth Fix report. Now, Mac, you had a little bit of experience with suction dredging, haven't you? I happen to used to have a keen just like the one on that picture. Oh, so uh, in the article they had a keen, and that's what you had. So it was a, a couple pontoons that held the, uh, I don't know what they call that part that, well, the rifle back. Oh, basically, what you got is a huge inner tube on a platform mounted with a um, water pump, mm-hmm. usually a trash type pump that'll take a little bit of junk. And on mine, I had a compressor mm-hmm. so I could have my own air supply. And then that fed from a suction nozzle up to the hose to the surface. The outflow would go into the box, hopefully separate stuff, and then exit. Okay. So what, this what? has been a controversy, though, for a hundred years, ever since miners started using high-pressure washes mm-hmm. on the mountains, because you obviously do disturb the bottom and you do uh, disturb, and you have sediments downstream, 
until it gets several miles away where it will then deposit itself, the heavy particles. Okay. So is it concern where it deposits it, or is it the turbulence until it settles down? Washington has always been an interesting place because you could actually pan for gold. Uh, you can get licenses, and you can actually use the dredges like they show here. Uh, the con- controversy now is because a lot more people are doing it, in my estimation. And uh, now you have the fishermen say, well, when you start muddying up my stream with that, I can't fish as well, so you're taking away my opportunity to fish. Let me rephrase that. Opportunity to catch a fish. You can fish all you want. Right. Uh, the environment, uh, anything that has to do with things, which is everything. If I can save one drop of water, it's worth it. Wow. Uh. So the environmentalist is always going to say, well, it's bad. My opinion, of course. Yeah, you broke up for just a second. So what what you're saying is that the environmentalists were, are they 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 say zero is the the goal. So anything that stirs it, up the water can't be good. Well, if you're gonna pan, mm-hmm. have you ever panned for gold? Sluice no, pan? but I mean I've you know with, when you talk about a pan, it's like a little bit bigger than a pie plate, and yep. you take some yep. silt and then you pan for it. So they're right. saying that that's bad. They're saying all of it's bad, but of course, if you got to say, well, what can I do? Go back to panning. Okay. And you've seen uh, the guys up in Alaska, right? Looking for gold? Yeah, I watch that every week. And you see the equipment, what they use, correct? Yes. And of course, the big difference is you don't have anybody around there, do you? Well, no, you don't have anybody around there, and a lot of them are, they're they are not injecting it back into the, the river, at least directly. They're usually using settlement or containment ponds. Right, depending on where they're at. Yes. Okay, but they still need water to do the processing. Yeah, yeah, you still use the water, but water is recyclable. So, uh, you're not that taking, correct. The, you're not taking anything that's not already in the environment. Everything that's there will the same be there. Thing the river, right? But, it's already there. You just bring it back. Well, and, and you're doing something that nature does all the time, which is she has a rain. It flows into the river. It's cloudy as all heck for about three or four days and that slowly starts to settle out. Right. You have a flood. You have over the embankment, you have a flash flood, you did the same thing. Yeah. So if there's a concern, like I was saying last week, what they need to do is identify what the concern is. When is the concern? Is it during spawning? Is it during certain things? Uh, you know, I would hate to see a river have, you know, in a five-mile stretch, 40 dredges, and they run 24 hours a day. But to have them run in a limited time and certain sections of the river, uh, that's fine. But yeah, people, it's competition. They don't, they don't want you competing with what they're doing. And as long as you're not permanently destroying something, I don't see any problem with, with filtering this stuff out. Well, in my opinion, a lot of the problems we have, especially environmental, is there's so many people and you're trying to feed them, house them, give them energy, mm-hmm. that no matter what you do, it's a losing battle because you're having more people every year. Yeah. The way you, of course, help minimize this problem. They say technology will overcome the population aspect up to a point, but you've got such a diverse action throughout the world, you can't get everybody to agree on it. And those people who have already been through it and have theirs don't want the people who's now coming up, you know, third world nations doing the same thing we did. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't want them to do it. So how do you make that equal for everybody? I don't, I don't know if there is a way. I don't think so either. No, but the, the only thing that you've seen is is established countries uh, as your level of living increases, standard of living increases, 
people tend to have less children to the point where some countries are less than two per couple. Yeah, like America. Yeah. So that's England, France, yeah. Germany. And that's really the end is that people decide that they that it's cushy and they prefer to not have a whole lot of kids. Then things will have a, a natural balance. Um, and education, you know, it, it's it's hard that when you've got countries that don't have a, a good education or a good standard of living. It's we're quite a ways off. I I think we will see a significant growth in population still. But China, I see, they finally did away with their one child per couple ruling. They've now loosened it to where you could have a second one. You know why, of course. Well, because they're they're uh, running into the other problem is that they they're having a hard time sustaining growth. They have an aging workforce. Yeah, they their uh, pension. You're going to have everybody drawn off the system and nobody feeding into it. And there's some concern that they may have uh, gone too late for their population to reverse the trend. They still have a lot of people. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. Let's see what this next one, uh, this is a follow-up, because you had the original article, which is a 19-year-old develops a clean-up array to remove, what was that, uh, 100,000, tons of plastic from oceans. And we covered this one before, didn't we? Well, we've, we've covered, I'm not sure which one you're on now, because you had the Guardian first, and if you went to that, that's the one that's got the big picture of all the stuff all over the place. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll go to the Guardian. Up. Right. Then. That rotated into where you went to the collective evolution mm -hmm. about the dead whales right. with the plastic. But it's a poor example because there's an a sperm whale in 2008, another whale in 2009. How many die because they get hit by boats? Right. I, I think that's a poor example other to say, hey, we're, we're killing whales with plastic. Um, but it's a poor example other than it does show that the proliferation of plastic is everywhere. Well, what you're showing, or what they're trying to do, so let's let's look at this. It's a dead whales are showing up, bringing us a message entire world should see. And let's see, this is from the Collective Evolution, uh, which I'm uh, taking this. That's an environmental publication. Uh, let's see. And unfortunately, these beachings are not an uncommon event. In 1989, the stranded sperm whale in the Lavasi Islands died of stomach obstruction after accidentally ingesting plastic bags and 100 feet of plastic sheathing. Paper published in 1990 reports that a sperm whale in Iceland died due to complicate complete obstruction of the gut with plastic marine debris. In August 2008, a sperm whale washed up dead in a beach in Point Reyes, California, with 450 pounds of fishing that plastic bag and rope in its stomach. Now they're not saying that these whales necessarily—I mean, a couple died from that, but the others just saying they found that in. They don't say if that's a cause of death. That's still pretty bad. Well, yeah, but again, a couple of whales here and there, collectively, like how many of them hit by ships and you never see? What's the natural die-off of a whale? Right, right. That's something but, that you have to understand the whole piece. But the I think the point they're trying to make is just that, you know, is it? They're, I think they're trying to say, hey, we found these, so this is happening to many, if not most of them. And we pretty much know that. That's been, you know, bandied about for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got another article you've got in there. It's a, it's a tagline on it. Uh, it's from Sea Shepherd, and it's also about the whales mm -hmm. and, and the plastic aspect. Read more plastic pollutions, visit the following items, and it talk about the plastic sea, plastic beaches. And then under that one, it had, uh, let's see here, a second one I looked at, which was the Guardian. That's another whale one. Mm -hmm. 
17, 17 kilogram of plastic waste. And then the last thing, they go back to that device that young man believes to have helped, you know, would solve the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. If it'll do it in five years and it's, and it's viable, why haven't we done it? It's been three since we talked about it. Yeah, well, let's see, because uh, they got a link in the article which goes to his website, which is theoceancleanup.com. Uh, let's see. So, collective evolution, yes. Yeah, and they're, and they're showing, they're showing, uh, now unfortunately they don't have years on this. Well, this was done, the TED Talk was in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. He got the best technical design in 2012. Uh, but I haven't seen any follow-up to see who is out there making some money out of it. So if it did everything it says, you would think there'd be an entrepreneur out there or a billionaire who would go out there and say, hey, this is how I'm spending some of my money. Yeah. Look what I'm doing for you. Because they're claiming in five years they can they can take care of the issue. See, I, I, it's, let's see if we're – well, he's got I'm, – I'm assuming this post – he's got a post on September 11th. And he, he's got this blog is or website uh, appears to be fairly active where there's posts at least once a month and sometimes more. So back in September of this year, uh, they had tests that confirmed workability of the boom design. So it looks like he's progressing along and still continuing. Then on the 28th, the uh, Ocean Cleanup Array to undergo 3D testing at Martin. Uh, this is where they said that uh, ocean cleanup development as cleanup technologies entered a new testing stage. Engineers are currently installing a scale model of the Ocean Cleanup Array at an offshore base in the world-renowned Marine Research Institute, Netherlands. And let's see, what's the next one? They've got, uh, on December 15th, they did a post which said, why do we need to clean up the garbage patches? And then on December 30th, they said, first cleanup buried test to be deployed in Dutch waters. So it does look like they're moving. Uh, I don't know. Is, is he asking for funding? Just Maybe looking at it, I can't really uh, tell from that. There's a donation. But, uh-huh. But if it looked that well, why does not a government or governments or the U.N., since they like to put their fingers in nobody else's pie, why don't the, why does not the U.N., you think, would get in the middle of this? Well, did I, did we, have we talked about the Dean Kane came in and his uh, water cleaning system that he had i don't because dean, dean Kamen is uh the he's he's a well-known engineer uh one of his products which was probably one that's most well known is the uh, uh segway but he's largely responsible for a lot of medical devices such as uh dialysis machines dialysis machines he got them down to the size where they can be used uh in part of what he was doing with dialysis he also worked on a way of creating perfectly sterile water. And when he realized that drinking water was a problem, he came up with these drinking machines. And he had developed this machine. It's about the size of, it's about, it's it's like a short refrigerator. So imagine a box about the same width and depth of a refrigerator, but about three and a half foot tall. And it's able to make enough water. You can put dirty, polluted water with anything you can think of in one side. And what comes out the other end is guaranteed to be 100% drinkable well we need to send some of those to flint michigan <laughs> yes i was sick of that earlier in the week uh but he did uh, and he proved it works he's he's able to make it you know like he said his first machine probably cost him five million dollars but he's able to get the cost down and he then went to the next phase which was he took 
it and put it into a community and had them try it out. And uh, he, he did a little bit of social engineering along with it. Like uh, the only way you could get water was it had to be a kid and the kid had to go to the school to get it. Yeah, he's trying to come up with ways of encouraging education, some other things along with his, his device. Uh, and it had a, an interesting effect is that the, you know, the... Think you know the Restyle 2016 what? Honda Accord? Think again. Accord has Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. LaneWatch camera. Oh, goodness. Did you, could you hear that? No. Oh, I had an audio go. Oh, hopefully I'll have to edit that out. Nope. But, but, but the, the thing he discovered is that, you know, giving people access to clean water was one part of it, but the other part was educating people on the value of the clean water. Because these people were, you know, they were getting sick and people are dying from not having the clean water. But once they had clean water, they would take this clean water and pour it into a dirty bowl. Or, you know, they just didn't understand everything that we take for granted of being able to have hygiene. So he got the system, he put it in place, and then he went to distribute it around the world. And he went to the UN, presented it, and he went and talked to all these UN ambassadors. And none of them had any idea how to help them. They said, that's not what we do. We don't have anything in place to be able to do that. So he spent years trying to find ways of getting it in. And what he finally did recently was uh, partnered with Coca-Cola because they're the only one with an infrastructure that can get uh, product anywhere in the world. Uh, in fact, what he did a little barter system. Have you seen those uh, Coca-Cola machines where you, they have the, the control panel in the front and you press the button and you get all the flavor drinks out of it? Yeah. Yeah, he was responsible for refining and, and uh, development of that machine. So he kind of uh, said, hey, I'll, I'll help you with this machine, and then you're going to help me distribute the water machine. But it just kind of goes, you, you, you know, solve, people don't want the problem solved. People want money. Like right now, the biggest, you know, scam with uh, global warming is not that people don't want to solve it. A lot of this stuff is easily to solve. If you actually believe that is a, is a problem and it's reversible, there's there's quick and easy ways of solving it. They don't want that. People want to find some way of, of of getting more for themselves. I'm curious where they haven't addressed when they get all the plastic. What are they going to do with it? Well, I think what wasn't part of his plan, let's see if we can go back to his article, uh, was that he thought that the plastic uh, he was going to use as a source of energy. Yeah. Meaning they're going to burn it? Well, burn it or refine it. I mean... There's a lot of energy, and and I mean, plastic is is made up of oil in many cases. I'm just looking at the wide varieties of plastic in this particular photo here in the ocean's garbage patches, mm -hmm. and trying to figure out. Well, one, you're not going to separate it. Well, maybe their technologies have a way of doing it with specific gravity of the particulate or something. But I'm just, you know, so you got the boat and you're filling it up full of the plastic. Where do you take it? What do you do with it? I don't know. I mean, maybe you make plastic cubes. Does it become bricks? Do you heat it up to a state where you, know, you can make uh, some sort of ceramic out of it? Or plastic houses. Plastic houses, yeah. You run them through uh, 3D printers. Well, it's interesting to see that since we talked about it, which is 2012, mm -hmm. they have got field testing as of this year. And yes. I think uh, the, se the segment there showed it was uh, into a six-section test pilot program progressing and they've planted the first so it appears somebody is doing something but again on what scale is going to be the question if you're really going to try to clean up the ocean right and, and I like you were saying you already know where the garbage patch is how are you going to clean that where are you going to put the debris 
and not how really it who is going to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't make money. Nobody's going to do it. Unfortunately. And that seems to be the way it goes. Yeah. Wow. Let's see if we can find another depressing story to talk about. <laughs> well, let's go to the billionaire store. I like that one. Well, you know, if we, if we can't make fun of ourselves, we like to make fun of really rich people, which I would put Paul Allen into the really rich category. You know, his, his boat is one of the 50th largest private yachts in the world. Well, when you say billionaire, that pretty much tells you he has a couple of, couple of dollars in change. Yeah, he's got a little bit. So what happened in, uh, is that his, his boat was docked in a, the Caribbean and it's allegedly destroyed a reef. So he was doing, uh, his boat was visiting the Cayman Islands earlier in a month. An anchor chain from the vessel damaged 14,000 square feet or 1,300 square meters. And in this particular reef, it was about 80% of the reef. Um, and this is according to the island's environmental department. Uh, Allen's Seattle-based Vulcan Incorporated organization, which manages his fortune, his fortune, said on Wednesday that the MV Tatouche was moored January 14th in a position explicitly directed by the local port authority, and his team was cooperating with the investigation. When its crew was alerted to the di- by a diver that his anchor chain uh, may have impacted the coral area of the crew promptly and on their own accord relocated the position to ensure the reef was protected. This according to Vulcan, which, which is his organization. The damage of the reef, which is vital for marine life, comes five months after the billionaire announced support for research to stabilize and restore coral reefs. The 92.42 meter or 303 foot uh, yacht is the 49th largest in the world, has twin helicopter landing pads, an observation lounge, a gymnasium, according to BoatInternational.com. Uh, potential fines of $600,000, not including civil damages, could be assessed. He could probably afford that. Well, you could afford it, but wouldn't you be a little ticked if you said, yeah. hey, where should I moor? And they say, hey, right here. Without an umbrella. Just data privacy. Sorry about that. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I went and to take a look at the tush. Uh huh. See if I could take a look at it. And I got a freaking ad. Yeah, that's, that's where the audio came from. That's all the websites do nowadays. But as you were saying, it's a huge ship, and uh, it doesn't show the size the size of the anchor. And I was trying to look at it to see how could it have done that much damage well, without dragging. Well, that's what it sounded like. Is that it was the chain from the anchor that was dragging on the reef. But if it's dragging, one would have thought you'd have noticed you moved your positioning. Well, I, I, well, you know how you, you, where your anchor goes down, you have your leader, and then you have chain. So if you just are at a, a you know, that chain, you know, they don't say how deep they were in, but I'm guessing probably 50, 60 feet of water. Uh huh. So you would, so 50, 60 feet of water, you could have two or 300 feet of chain out. And maybe that's, this is something that they, frequently do, but they're not accustomed to a boat the size of his, so they incorrectly told him where to berth. And maybe they'll, they'll learn something out of this, because obviously what this means is you need some moorings. That's what he should have been. It should have been a per- permanent mooring. Well, for they said they moved. Big. Once they re- were told they may be doing some damage, they moved to another area. So if they parked there because they were told to, I don't think he should have to pay a darn tax. No. And it also says down here, it's also reported Cayman government has been unable to collect fines after a number of similar incidents over the last few years. 
Well, the, the reason they're unable to collect the fines is I, I don't know what the, the legal system down there came in and who they've got. Uh, you know, you, sometimes what you have to do if you're a government like them and you don't have a, a long reach is that you have to sue in the U.S. and get a judgment here. I've seen that as a trend. Anyway, I sent you a picture of the yacht. It's like, wow. Okay. But again, he has taken responsibility for it from the aspect of did we do it or did you guys help us do it? Yeah. Well, right. And they've got money, so if they find out that they're negligent, they'll pay. And I wouldn't be surprised if they end up doing some sort of, just from a PR standpoint, fix it. Right. Since he's already doing that for many other items, I, I don't think that there's any any doubt that he's going to try to make it right. Maybe they can experiment, find another way of uh, doing it a little bit better than had previously been done. Okay, let's see. What do we got next up? Oh, scuba instructor takes the ethical dive. State executive ethic boards crack down on WSU professor for selling class equipment from his company to students. Do scuba diving professor Barry Moore is the owner of Clearwater, a scuba diving business. Through his course, he allegedly promoted and sold and rented, uh, or promoted the selling and renting of equipment through his private company. In August 1995, Clearwater signed an agreement with WSU to rent and sell its merchandise to students. This agreement was contracted for one semester and not renewed. Based on this information, Moore believed he was complying with the ethics law, even though there was no written contract and operated with that understanding ever since, according to Washington State Executive Ethics Board. In the course syllabus, Moore compared the equipment prices of Clearwater to those of Brand X, which was an average of the cost of equipment at scuba shops in Seattle. The comparison presented a much lower cost to students who chose to rent through Clearwater. According to Washington State Auditor's Office, Moore claimed the scuba shop in Spokane closed down, which is why he didn't provide their information. However, the Auditor's Office discovered the Spokane Scuba Shop was, in fact, operating and renting equipment to other universities at a cheaper rate than Clearwater. Even though Moore's association is disclosed in the course handout, and other students were aware he owned the company, according to the auditor's office report. Some students believed they were purchasing or renting equipment from the university, while others thought it was a company that the university used. Moore's actions are alleged in violation of multiple sections of Ethics and Public and Service Act, which states state employees are prohibited from engaging a business transaction that conflict with their employment. Additionally, state employee must not use their position to secure special privileges. Finally, a state employee must not use their position for the private benefit or gain of the employee. Some students disagree with allegations made against Moore. He did mention that we could buy it, his equipment as an option. He mentioned the company, but not that it was cheaper, said Kate Jacobs, the senior zoology major. I love the class. It's one of my favorites. It's a great way to learn and get training. WSU will continue to offer scuba diving classes. Legal action against Moore has not been decided. You know what? I think it's interesting. We're talking college students, right? Right. We're talking about people who probably live with an iPad, iPhone, electronic media, right? Right. You don't think they're smart enough to uh, compare pricing? Certainly. I do too. So my comment would be, what were some of the comments? Well, I didn't know he owned it. I mean, does that make a difference? I understand why an ethics board would take a look at something like this and why they would have rules, but at, to the extent of which he's really caused problems. But the only thing that makes me concerned is if he's, 
if if you were handing something out and part of it was a sales pitch, like I, if I was him, I wouldn't have done a comparative to local prices and say, why is it better to rent from me or this company than purchase? You know, I think that's where they may get him is that he was actually making a recommendation that was wrong and he was benefiting from the fact it was wrong. I don't necessarily see a problem with him as the instructor also having this interest. And and primarily the reason why I'm saying it's fine is because I bet there are areas of the country the same thing's going on, and if it wasn't for that instructor doing that, there may not even be that. Because the school could do it, but they probably didn't want the hassle. That's a, that's a lot of maintenance and time to put in that they probably couldn't recover, so they're probably happy in doing it. Like uh, here at our local college if you go to if you take the uh, scuba diving at lmc that's done by sas Subaquatics in kalamazoo he's also the instructor and he also owns a shop so what's the difference i mean he's not a full-time employee but he's being reimbursed for people taking that class uh, i i don't see really the issue myself to me if, if the school had an issue they should have done their own cost comparison yeah i'm guessing somebody when you, when you buy something don't you do cost comparison on your own well, I would. And it's a professor who obviously is a diver who also owns a diving business on the side. Yeah. You know, but and you're going to have him teach your, your classes using his equipment. How would they not know that? Yeah. And how would, how would a student, a, a young adult, let's say 18 to 21, not know price comparison shopping? I'm sure what's happened over time is he's been able to get a little bit more for his rental and his pricing out of convenience. Now, I'm sure he's got the stuff right there. You know, he, he arranges, you know, you do a sign-up sheet, you bring it in, not obviously knowing how he specifically does it, but that seems a reasonably to assume that it would be some method. But the other thing is to consider that this is a university who the biggest scam I think going is university books. <laughs> you can You can pay more for your books for a class than you can for the class. My daughter who's in high school, who's taking college classes. There, there's, there's a book that's insane. It's a hundred, like $150 for a book. Why? I print books. Let me print it. I don't get paid $150 to print a book. It, it, so, so here they are, they are, they're going to go after some scuba diver because he's, he's renting a gear, renting, not making them buy. And, uh, they're going to have a problem with it. But, uh, what, what I don't understand though, in August of 1995, yeah, we this just, agreement was contracted for one semester, not renewed. So what is the issue if that's 1995? Did well, he continue to, you know, present the classes without a contract because they, they didn't need one? Well, and what was, is the contract just for the equipment? And then if they, if they're still teaching a class and they didn't have a contract, how do they think people were getting the equipment? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's more to it than we know. Exactly. Well, then here we go. We have some uh, somebody saying it's a, the sweetest kind of sustainable food is available. I love scallops. Scallops are not, are tasty. Oh, I love them. They said winter's a time to eat scallops. A filter feeder that cleans marine habitats can be sustainably harvested. When it comes to seafood, and this is the the author, and the author was in TakePart.com magazine, the column Jane Says. Says when it comes to seafood, I'm not an original or ambitious cook. I'd rather keep things simple and fast, especially when it comes to scallops, one of the winter's greatest delicacies. Scallops like clams, oysters, and mussels are filter-feeding bivalves, unlike those other saltwater mollusks that have 
recumbent life, scalps can move about freely because they have many primitive eyes and they can sense the motion of starfish and other predators and skitter away using strong, predominantly drum-shaped abductor muscles, which is the meat that we eat, to clap their shells together. I'm not the only person who finds the fact that scallops can swim utterly captivating. So what they're saying is that these are uh, sustainable and they're harvested by divers. They say they, the sea scallops grow quickly, mature at a young age, traits that make them resilient to fishing pressure. In the U.S., sea scallops were once overfished but have since recovered thanks to effective management. In Canada, sea scallops are also, also at a healthy abundance. Oh, but they use a dredge to harvest them. That's what I was also curious about. <laughs> if I dredge that along the bottom, I'm, I'm upsetting the bottom surface, right. all the material that's on the bottom. Why you, is that not an environmental issue? Can you keep the gold that you find? <laughs> so the 15-foot-wide steel frame used to drag chain bag along the seafloor. It's kind of fishing gear and inadvitably bycatch issues when it comes to flatfish and turtles. However, their searchers uh, research and design can, a kinder, gentler dredge is ongoing. One organization does a lot of good work on the front is the uh, names uh, Kumasetit. Farm Foundation of East Falmouth, Massachusetts. Its scientists have been among the grant recipients from NOAA Atlantic Sea Scalp Research Set-Aside Program, which partners research and fishers to conduct at-sea operations on board fishing vessels. Scalps are highly perishable after being harvested, so they're typically shucked at sea and iced in muslin bags. They naturally contain up to 75-80% water and often soaked in uh, sodium triphosphate, a common additive in the freezer food industry. Small amounts of STP help bind natural water contents of the food into the protein, thus preventing trip loss when frozen food is thawed. Over the years, unscrupulous scallop processors discovered that when soaked in a relatively strong solution of STP or newer, more difficult to detect water retaining additives, freshly shucked scallops may absorb more than 25% extra water which you, the customer, pay for because they're sold by weight. Uh, I like them. Uh, I was out in Maryland one time, which is really a nice place for seafood. And uh, then there was a little bit of controversy about fake scallops. And some were, you know, there's a, it's called a deep sea scallop. Mm-hmm. They're really large, but they're not the same as these here. They're not as uh, delectable. The other one was... Uh, Used to stamp out shark mm-hmm. and make little round little patties that looked like scallops, and it was actually shark. Oh, and they've substituted that for that for for uh, scallops. Yeah, seafood is one of the most mislabeled food products there is, and part of it is because uh, fish become like like let's say orange roughy. Talk about side dishes for your next barbecue. That's annoying, isn't it? Oh, I hate that. I hate that with a passion. Uh, so let, let's say it's uh, orange roughy, which, by the way, is renamed to another fish. It's probably some sort of garbage fish. But it becomes popular, and a couple big-name restaurants put it on the menu, and it's not sustainable or available. So what happens is because everybody's used to that, any fish that kind of has the same texture or flavor that you can pass off be, gets passed off. Yeah. So that happens frequently. Yeah. And it's not an issue to me when they do that and they label it 
imitation scallop, right. just like you get your imitation crab, then I don't have a problem with it, you know, because sometimes my taste buds aren't the best in the world. I'd be comfortable with it. Just don't mis, you know, misrepresent it and, and make me pay for something that is, that it is not what I'm paying for. Well, right. And that's really the reason they're doing it and mislabeling it is because what they're selling you is something that they would usually only be able to get about a quarter of what they're going to be able to sell to you because you think it's yeah. something else. But I'm a seafood guy. I, uh, there's very little seafood that I don't like. I um, don't like soft shell crab. I don't know. I think I think somebody needs to send me some, and I'll I'll try it and find out if I like it or don't go, like it. Go to you got to go to Baltimore. I love that place for food, but I don't like soft shell. When, when I was doing a lot of traveling, that was one of my things, especially if it was a coastal area. Was trying to get seafood, and that can be remarkably difficult sometimes. You know, you have to do a little bit of research. Maybe now with the internet, it's probably a little bit easier. Yeah. And then it always seems like I'd end up traveling with somebody who hated seafood. I was always lucky, like to go down to Louisiana for a job or something. Oh. Let's go out to eat to a, you know, a local place. You get some good gumbo and I mean, mm. got some good, good seafood down there. Oh, New Orleans. Well, South Carolina, I think we had some pretty good when we went down there. Yes, we did. Yeah, that was some nice seafood. Ooh, night, night, road trip. Time to go. Uh, we need to get with Richard and get our own shark tooth up, uh, expedition down there. We certainly do. And then they're saying a world-renowned diver jumps from the oceans into local schools. Professional diver Ann Car- Crowley? Crowley is spending the next 100 days in local schools. Now, is she, do you recognize her? No. Okay. They said world-renowned. So I guess that doesn't mean famous. It just means that she's been around, I guess. Is that what it is? Uh, she's on crusade to show kids that the ocean is really like. Crowley says kids... Know all kinds of things live in the ocean. They can name several. While many kids say dolphins, crabs, and sharks, just as many say Patrick's Squidwards and SpongeBob. Kids see SpongeBob SquarePants and they think that is the ocean. Says Crawley. She says, it's "Okay for kids to have fun, but why not do it a better understanding what really is in the water?" Yeah. As, as a side note, real quick, she is an award-winning producer, mm-hmm. underwater photographer. She is an author and a motivational speaker. Okay. And she did find uh, found. Dive into your imagination, which is a series of books, ebooks, and mm-hmm. DVDs, lesson plans, all about life in the ocean. Yeah. So she's really up there. She's also a member of the uh, Women's Divers Hall of Fame. Okay. And she's a diving instructor. And when she does travel through the world, she takes her camera with her. Yeah. So that I got qualifies her. Uh, her website is Ann, A-N-N-I-E, Crawley, C-R-A-W-L-E-Y dot com. And you can see a lot of uh, what she's do- she's doing there. But that, that's a now I see her picture. She I do think I've seen her before. Like maybe she's been on some shows. So good for her. Do they now? What country is she from? Do they say Australia? Australia. Well, that might also might be. We might not be getting all the the same media. Well, quite often American politics and news aspect is if you're not American, it doesn't count. Yeah. Well, she does have a Seattle, Washington address for one of her websites i like to quote i was walking down the street in australia after college sign said learn to scuba dive i tried it and fell in love with it and here we are there you go sounds believable to me kudos to her yep and if she would like me to come along on a dive trip with her i'd be more more than happy yeah and we would plug her here on the show she's in seattle 
if that's where she's in the U.S., if that's really her base, that's the same where Laura is. Uh, I think Laura James, the cinematographer. Four meters under the sea, diving in sunken river valleys of Marlborough Sound. This one's out of New Zealand. And uh, quite an extensive article talking about um, diving in the sound. All I know is her visibility is better than ours normally. And that's what I was thinking. I was expecting it to be really bad when the, just based on the premise, but I got some nice shots. Yeah, covered in orange seaweed. I like that where you draw the seawall. Mm-hmm. And those looked like pretty interesting fish. Yeah, blue cod. They said they were lured in by the feed of kina. I'm not sure what kina is. Is that a fish or a plant? So an interesting article. That one's in uh, stuff.co.newzealand. And if I ever get show notes together, you could click on the link and follow it along. Uh, I keep doing more websites. I, I've been doing about two a week now. and Sometime I'm going to get back to Scoob Obsessed and get that updated. I do notice that when they're talking about what they're seeing on the bottom, they come across, let me see the quote he had here again. Obviously, you know where it's going to go. Uh, he was talking about uh, items you'll find on the bottom. One of it was... Uh, you know, trees and stuff, you know how they fall down on the surface. You have all sorts of parting, uh, problems with entrapment. Mm-hmm. They said they came on glass bottles from partying boaters or owners that have just thrown them in. Uh, microwaves, clothes dryers, fridges. If you're, if you're not a diver, you don't see it, but there's so much rubbish in the sea, he says, as we've just been talking about tons and tons and tons. Lots of it. Yeah. You see it all the time. Now, did you go to the bottom of the page? All the way down, where it says more from stuff, third picture to the right. <laughs> okay, let me take a look. I'll have to go back. <laughs> oh, I'm, I Maybe I don't see the same thing that you're seeing. A chance to bear all. Oh. Went all the way down to the bottom of it. The next New Zealand story. Then it has more from stuff. There's four pictures. Yeah, mine are uh, Art Green, Plain Donor, Deadliest Film Ever Made. Oh, really? Yeah. This it, is a it, black box of schizophrenia. New Zealand NVS and a chance to bear it all and the back so you might appreciate it. Uh-huh. They're all naked and you got the backside of all of them jumping in the pool. <laughs> ah. Yes, that's a whole, the, the, I call that clickbait. Uh, clickbait? Elijah's well, dead. Yeah. And it said people encouraged to try natural, uh, naturalism, 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 mm-hmm. a try. Yeah. They all enjoy a swim on a hot summer day. I think the scuba straps might give you a little burn on your shoulders. So. Oh, is it? Di- they it wasn't just they were scuba diving. They no, could. but they could. Oh, oh okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's why if you're wearing your BC, definitely wear a t-shirt. <laughs> well, here we got some potentially uh, interesting scuba accessories. Can we do something before we go there? Sure. Hop up back to Sea Bob. We bypass it. Well, so right, that's new gear. Yeah, that's that's I uh, got it in the new gear. Oh, you got it there too. No, that's where I moved it to. Oh, okay, gotcha. So, do you want to cover that now, or? Well, if we can, if we can go ahead and do the sea bob. And I, the video is pretty nice. Got to knock out the sound. Okay, I think I've still got that one. Oh wait, no, I didn't. Oh. Hang on a second. I said that to you. If you can get it without making the noise. And if I could turn it off, I'd have just done that myself and just talked about it for you. Yeah. Did you get it? Yeah, I've I've got it, but uh, now I'm trying to figure out. Uh, 
So this the CBOB. What this is is CBOB. God, what that? That's a terrible website. CBOB A D R I A T I C dot com. I guess CBOB was already taken. I mean, it, that would have been a better name. But this is a scooter, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's like our normal uh, diver propulsion vehicles, except this one is useful on the surface as well as subsurface. And as I recollect, the speed on the surface was nine miles an hour. That's pretty freaking fast to be hanging on to something bouncing through the waves. Yeah. And underwater, you're certainly not going to go nine because it'll rip your mask off. Yes. Yeah, but you're have to it go looked slow. nice. Uh, it's an expensive toy because they ran like $9,000. A little pricey. But, man, if you could really go nine knots or nine miles an hour, you could do a lot of traveling. Yeah, all all the sales locations, according to the website, seem to be over there in Europe. Yeah. But if you like DPVs, give that one a shot. I like one of the links. Seabob sales to super yachts. Yes. The people who got the money. Yeah. Oh, see, if you put it on your super yacht, you also get a crane with it. Well, the gentleman in the Caribbean with the two helicopter pads, he might have one of those. Yeah, yeah he could use one. Well, and then when you're not uh, on your sea bob and you're on your yacht, you could always play uh, a board game called Scuba. Uh, there's a Kickstarter project, uh, 20 days left to go, 173 backers. They're looking for $21,654, and they've got 10223 so far, so almost halfway. They said it's a realistic and fun 30 to 60 minute board game designed for two to four family gamers, experienced board gamers, and scuba divers. You look at <laughs> look at that that map. Doesn't that look like the the Patty Diver certification chart? Which map are you at? I must have a different item. I, oh, what, no! What I did is I I followed the link from the uh, article to the Kickstarter site. Oh, okay. So I'm actually on the Kickstarter, and they've got this play mat and the way they've got it set up everything's so close together it, it's, it looks like it's pretty well designed but they've got cards around the outside kind of like what you would have Monopoly but they've they got this grid laid out with scoring and it just reminds me of a certification chart you know, like all the different uh, certs you can get they said uh, scuba, oh, yeah. scuba's a realistic diving board game which players dive in the ocean looking for cool animals you try and find as many animals as possible try to make combinations of them so dust uh, make dust so the other players can't see the fish. Make dust. Okay. So it must be part of the mechanic of the game working. Yeah, they're finning the bottom. Oh, okay. So there's animal cards, event cards, current cards, depth cards, a game board, some, some dials, game pieces. Uh, but don't forget to watch your air. <laughs> yes. So they're saying you can pick up a copy for 36 euros or 39 pounds. This includes an 8 euro subsidy on shipping to the U.S. is free if you buy two copies or more. Uh, 5 euros or 540 when you buy one for shipping to other countries. See the, the shipping chart. Advanced. Oh, Scuba has been designed for family gamers without decompression rules. They recommend ages 8 plus, but younger kids may enjoy it also. Advanced gamers with decompression rules. Scuba divers with decompression rules. Visually challenged colorblind players see the fact for more details so let's see what do you have to you know, they, they said what the price was i wonder if there's any other options so you could do you can pledge for a dot for a euro you've got 29 euros which gives you one copy with all the stretch goals 36 and promo packs 72 euros 
which gets you two copies of the game. You pledge 91 euros or more, and you sponsor an animal, your name on, on the animal card of your choice in every copy of the game. Estimated delivery is October 2016. You know, if I was Donald Trump, I'd buy all the animals, have my name on it. <laughs> yes. I'd give them away to kids in America. There you go. That's not buying a, an election. <laughs> So interesting. Yeah, I, I hope I'm well. Uh, do you play board games anymore? You know, I do uh, more cards than board games, but board games are extremely popular. Uh, yeah, the only ones I ever liked was Monopoly. Well, I, you know, Monopoly. Uh, my kids got in a phase where they liked Sorry. I used yeah. to play Parcheesi with my mother. Uh, did Clue. Uh, Risk was good for some extended times. Um, trying to think what else we've done some, you know, more of the party games, the scattergories and some of that. So I, I like it. Yeah. I, some of them now are getting really complicated and you have to have time. You have to get everybody all together. So, uh, and you got to take away their iPads and iPhones. Oh, that's, it gets me going. Uh, we did get, uh, my, my daughter to get a card game, exploding kittens. Uh, that's, that one was kind of interesting. And here's some new technology, underwater wireless networks. They're talking about, and we've, we've covered this several times in the program before, they said that uh, current underwater networks are so 1990s. They said underwater communications is comparable to sluggish dial-up modems from America's online days. Shortcomings hamper search and rescue operations, tsunami, tsunami detection, and other work. They said that's changing due to UB engineers who are developing hardware and software to help underwater telecommunications catch up with over-the-air counterparts. It said the ongoing collaboration with Northwestern Northeastern University described in a study software-defined underwater acoustic networks towards a high-rate, real-time, reconfigurable modem. <laughs> that was published in November on IEEE Communications Magazine, and we probably covered that before. But they go on and explain some of the benefits. So I'm ready. Bring it on. I think there's some potential that we can use with, you know, recall systems. Imagine being able to uh, have a built-in recall system that could call all the everybody's dive computer when you were down. Uh, yeah, the item here said potential application for technology include. The one I liked, I just read part of it. It said drug, smug drug smugglers. <laughs> and I said, so, back up a little bit. So, <laughs> it said military and law enforcement work, for example, drug smugglers have deployed makeshift submarines to ferry narcotics long distance underwater. An improved, more robust underwater sensor network could help spot these vessels. So it's not for the, for the drug smugglers to communicate with each other. It's for the right. network to monitor them to see it. Uh, diver to diver walkie-talkies. Uh, Energy would finding oil and natural gas easier. I I could imagine you'd have a sensor array like like in Lake Michigan. Imagine if we had that, we could put together a buoy network, and then you could have uh, wireless ROVs. You could remote control them and get live feeds from them. Or if you could have it so you did the buoy in reverse to what we have, you anchor it on the bottom, so it's not a subject to the uh, violence of the wave action on the surface. Yeah. And you have it up to within five feet of the surface, so you can have all the same criteria, but not the wave dynamics you have on the buoy on the surface. Oh, that'd be interesting. Kind of like uh, what some people use pairs for, where you have the buoy and you could have it, you know, send a signal out. And when you got close to it, you just connect to it. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's some things we could do. And then wetsuits with hair. Now, that one I was going to see how you, you said about that. That's interesting. Well, and, and we're not talking about the merino-lined uh, Speedos. This is actually a material, uh, the textiles that mimic air trapping of otter fur. They said otters are amazingly cute, no doubt, but these marine mammals are also amazing another way. They can also, they often swim in water that are 16 degrees Celsius or 61 degrees Fahrenheit. They're colder. That's tropical. Yeah, I thought so. That's not, that's, yeah. that's way wetsuit weather. Yeah. Regular wetsuit don't need anything special. But what their point is, is that they're able to track, trap air in their fur, which helps them keep warm. So they're saying is that this material would do the same thing, and they're proposing it as it could be used as a new material in wetsuits. wonder if you could transplant that on my head. Yeah, I bet you could. One square inch, they roll a million hairs? Wow, that's a lot. I would consider that very dense, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. What are, yeah, I always wonder when I read stuff like this, how long before it actually becomes a product. Is, is the furry stuff on the outside of the suit or the inside? I don't know. And I'm also curious. I was looking at the pictorials. And then you got the compression factor. I wonder what that is deeply, you know. The otters are on the surface, so it's not under pressure. Well, that's one of the benefits of some of these ultra-flexible neoprenes is that they blow so much air into it that yeah. until those bubbles break down, you actually have a nice insulating property. So similar idea. Yep, they said uh, some researchers have studied surface covering with forest of stubby rods that one may, be, may lead to fur-inspired fabrics. Yes, furry wetsuits. Did you read the part about how they're made? No. Well, or they're, they're testing. They said, as a first step, the team probed how water-repellent surfaces become when they're covered with stiff, stubby surf, uh, structures. First, they used lasers to sculpt mold, uh, molds with hundreds of tubular holes. And they filled these molds with liquid rubber-like silicon. The silicon filled the holes, then flowed over the tops of them, created stub-covered sheets when the material gelled. Then it said they then dipped those rubber sheets into a container of water to see what happened. And the more slowly the water soaked into the forest of the stubs and replaced the air, the more water repellent the surface was, and therefore the heat factor was increased. Oh. So it's really not so much the air, it's just it's repelling quality to keep water away. So I guess the, the that must be pointing out then, the furry part. Well, we did learn our little factoid for the for the day, though. What's that? Well, they had the densest fur of any animal, mammal, number one. And then it said one square inch, they grow about a million hairs. Yes, something I did not know in advance. Yeah. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. I have been getting messages from people in the Southern Hemisphere, and they are diving. It is their prime diving season right now. So I am jealous. Nobody sent me a plane ticket to go down and go diving with them. Well, Mr. David dove with me up here, and he's at home in Australia. Uh -huh. And the other week it was 113 where he was at. Ooh. And they were fighting fires, prairie fires. Does not sound like a fun thing to do. No, no. 113, I, I think my winner is more preference than 113 degrees. And last week he made a rude comment about he had a scuba gear in his boot of his car. And uh, 
he didn't need a wetsuit, and he was going to go out and look at some submarines. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Put it in. Yeah. But you did get a dive in, I understand. Yeah, actually, uh, we wound up with four of us out there. Uh, we did go out Saturday. Uh, Kevin came on down. He brought his uh, pop-up shanty. Uh, Mr. Curtis showed up. Um, oh, and Ted showed up. So we had four of us. Uh, we had two inches of ice out a couple of feet. And if you got under the ice shelf, you were not going to break it with your tank. No, not no. two inches you're not going to break No, it. you would not. Visibility was the best I've had in a month. But again, Saturday was a wonderful, bright, sunny day. So you think it was the sunniness that played in the visibility, or is it just lower current? Well, I think the uh, ice flows was keeping the stuff away. Oh. <laughs> and, and uh you know, it wasn't raining, wasn't anything falling off the trees. All the leaves are down. It's going to be down. Uh, and actually, a lot of the leaves that were out earlier in the shallows are gone by because of some of the fast current. So it's starting to look like it's ready for spring already. Nice. And, uh, yeah, everybody had fun. Your lips froze real quick. It was 33, 34 degrees. Did you uh-huh. have anybody doing any shore support or was it just everybody in the water we we went out i had the lines and stuff if we had if it looked like we we're going to need it but everybody had a uh uh float device like uh, you can't drag my inner tube under the ice right so if i went under there there's no way i was not going to be able to find my way back out okay but there's a couple of sections you know where you have the tree limbs and stuff down and the tree bodies yeah. you didn't want to get under the ice near those because it got confining and snag hazards Right. Now, is there any parts of the river where it was iced over from one side to the other? Not right now. I was up in uh, Ann Arbor uh, in the middle of the week, and that river up there by the uh, university and by the medical center, frozen over solid. Uh, even parts of the St. Joe River under the bridges out towards Berrien Springs was ice covered last week. Okay. But we've had some, you know, ups and downs, so I don't really know what the ice on the inland lakes are going to be. And talking about that, um, I think Bob is back from the sunny south. He wants to get something going on for this weekend. And uh, the 7th, which is Sunday, uh, Kevin is uh, trying to organize an ice dive. Not sure where yet right now. If the ice is thick enough, be Gull Lake, which you have dove before in the ice. Yes. Or a little north of that, I think he called it, not Gull Lake, but... um, is that Eagle? No. No, no, Gull. Uh, it was north of him. Gun Lake. Gun, okay. Uh, but I told him when he finds a place, he, it needs to be a minimum of 20 foot deep because, you know, as well as I do, and, you know, Lake 16, you got 60 foot to the bottom. Nobody's going to screw up the bottom and mess up your viz. No, we've done Singer in, you know, was that probably 18 feet there where we've done it before? Yeah, but we've been looking to bottles and first man has visibility for about <laughs> 10 seconds. Yes. And after that, it's nothing. And everybody's following them is in the, in the soup. Yep. And to really have fun, you know, we like that where we can swim around, even though we did a lineless dive that time. It's nice to have visibility. It's even better to know where the hole is, go towards the light. Yeah. That, that makes it more enjoyable. Oh, big time. And, that, and that's one of the nice things about ice diving. If you haven't had a chance to do ice diving, that's one of the benefits. If you're a northern diver and you're used to low to moderate visibility conditions, it's like you're diving in another part of the world. But Just, And we're lucky because we, we were you know, talking six, maybe 20 inches of ice. You go up to Wisconsin, those guys are having to go through three <laughs> feet of ice. 
You need a step ladder to get to the water after you. Now cut. That, that's a different experience. That's one I haven't had to do. All all my ice dives, I've been able to flop in and slide in and out. Even though we do look like beach walruses. Now I did talk to my dive buddy Jim, and he's getting his gear service. So hopefully that means we'll be able to get him in the in the water more often. It'll be interesting to see since we haven't had a lot of uh, ice coverage on the Great Lakes this year. It's really been minimal, comparatively speaking, which means come March, wouldn't surprise me if people get out in the big lake. That would be nice. It's been a few years since we've been able to get out that early. Yeah. So the 7th looks like diving and then maybe something this weekend with Bob. Right. I'm going to uh, Aviation Expo in Chicago myself uh, on Saturday, but uh, hopefully I be around to do something on Sunday. But uh, again, the other one is the 7th, which is a Sunday also. Okay. Well, hopefully that works out. And uh, if if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at Scoob Obsessed. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. The website, www.scoobobsessed.com. I'd like to thank uh, Reno Viola Outdoor Network for having us on the air. If you like scuba diving and other outdoor types of programs, you can listen to network, wrvoradio.com. Let's see, you have anything to plug, Mac? No, I, I'm pretty much set for right now. I'm starting I've got to see. a lot of traveling coming up there next month for different places to go on trips. I'm starting to see a lot of uh, posts on the seminars. Yep. Uh, Ghost Ships has Jill Heinerth booked. She's going to be talking up there. Also, I think she might be coming to Our World Underwater as well. Unless I was seeing that maybe it was the other Our World Underwater. Not they got more than one. It's uh-huh. it's hard to tell. But for us, us in the northern hemisphere, who the few of us not I'm not including myself because I like ice diving. But if you don't like to get and do ice diving, it's time to hit the show circuit and start thinking about next year's. I say next year's. This year's diving coming right on up. Well, I think it's that time of the show. I'm anxiously awaiting. Yes, and this one came. To us, it's sometimes a joke is so bad, it has to go around the planet. So this one originated in Ohio, went to New Zealand, and then came back to me. So frequent listeners of the show will put together the names of those involved, but it's more than one who's responsible for this. Two hillbillies walk into a restaurant. While having a bite to eat, they talk about their moonshine operation. Suddenly, a woman at a nearby table who's eating a sandwich begins to cough. After a minute or so, it becomes apparent that she's in real distress. One of the hillbillies looks at her and says, Can you swallow? The woman shakes her head no. Then he asks, Can you breathe? The woman begins to turn blue and shakes her head no. The hillbilly walks over the woman, lifts up her dress, yanks down her drawers, quickly gives her right butt cheek a lick with his tongue. The woman is so shocked that she has a violent spasm and the obstruction flies out of her mouth. As she begins to breathe again, the hillbilly walks slowly back to his table. His brother said, You know... I heard of that hind lick maneuver. Ain't never seen it done before. <laughs> I can just visualize that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could. You know, that may work. <laughs> it, it possibly could. Yes. I think you'd have to have a little bit of air left to expel. But, uh,. You know, it may be the safest harassment you'd ever be able to do, though, when you think about it. I mean, she either doesn't make it, or she's so thankful she's going to forgive you. <laughs> hey, she's not dead. Yes. 
I wonder if that works with guys, too. <laughs> I'm not going there. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>